You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. ESG has become established as a key business theme as companies and investors seek to navigate the climate crisis, energy transition, social megatrends mounting regulatory tension, and pressure from other stakeholders. The rapidly evolving landscape has become inundated with acronyms, buzzwords, and lingo, and we aim to break these down with industry experts. Welcome to ESG Currents, brought to you by Bloomberg Intelligence, your guide to navigating the evolving ESG space one topic at a time. I'm Rob Duboff, Senior ESG Analyst, your host for today's episode. Now, we've talked in the past about the challenges facing ESG. Chief among them is comparability. How, how can I say company A is better than company B at ESG? when they're reporting completely different data points? How's a retail investor or a customer to believe company C when they say their business is quote unquote, good for the planet or people? How green is that so-called environmentally friendly investment fund? While efforts to understand these questions in the US are currently bocked down by political or cultural forces, Europe has gone full steam ahead with the groundbreaking sustainable finance action plan, which is backed by a broad set of new and enhanced regulations applicable across the EU. Today, we're joined by Nathan Fabian, Chief Sustainable Systems Officer at the UN-backed Principles for Responsible Investment. From 2020 to 2022, he was also chair of the European Platform for Sustainable Finance, the group tasked with advising the European Commission on implementation and usability of the EU sustainable finance framework. Also joining me is my Bloomberg colleague, Nadia Humphreys. Nadia manages Bloomberg's global regulatory and climate solutions team and also serves as an observer and previously co-reporter on the platform for sustainable finance. And has also worked with regulators in the UK and Singapore to develop their own sustainable finance regimes. Most importantly, Nadia is my sometimes karaoke partner whenever she finds herself in the US. But if, if times are tough here, Rob, we can just kind of crack open yeah. a bit of song, I think. So. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I don't think we should subject our guests to that. So Nathan, uh, first of all, welcome. Hi, Rob. Good to be with you. Thanks. So just want to start with the basics. Why do we even need government regulation in sustainable finance? Uh, if there's so much demand for sustainable investment products, why can't private markets just work themselves out as they always do. Yeah, that's a very good reason. That's because as the market grows, uh, markets like standardization, they like comparability, and they like low transaction cost. So the best thing to do is just to make some clear rules, ideally as simple as possible, so that everyone can use them. And referring to your opening, you know, whether company B or company C 
uh, is making the same claim or it's different and the same then flows through to the financial products and the investment options. So really, if you want scale and you want to do it quite quickly, which we have to do on our environmental challenges, then you need some standards to do it. So maybe briefly explain for us Americans, what is the EU platform on sustainable finance? So it's a group of experts uh, and their job is to identify how, say, goals in the Paris Climate Agreement or the biodiversity global framework translate into performance standards for individual economic activities. So if I'm trying to reduce emissions consistent with the 1.5 degree warming target, how many emissions can I have for each kilowatt uh, hour of energy or for each ton of cement or steel? And so it's a simple benchmark that brings these very big and diffuse global goals into quite discrete packages that allow markets to respond to them. Great. So you did mention simplicity. And unfortunately, every time I talk to Nadia, it's not such a simple conversation. I hear TAXO, CSRD, SFDR. Can you help us unpack what some of these things are? Yeah, it it's actually is quite simple. So the, the CSRD is corporate disclosures. Uh, the SFDR is for financial product disclosures. And the taxonomy is an environmental benchmark that you can use in both. So uh, the corporate disclosure framework has been around for years. The Europeans have been building on it. They used to call it something like non-financial, which was not really the purpose I think they were, they were going for originally. And that's maybe why there's the name change. But what they've realized is if you want capital markets and real economy activities to align around climate goals, then you need all these three elements of the framework to, to line up. And so we've got a corporate, a financial and an environmental benchmark in the taxonomy. Great. I guess maybe more, this might be kind of technical, but in the US, certainly, you know, you have the Securities Exchange Commission sets a rule that kind of applies to all federal markets, but the EU is obviously a group of multiple countries. So how, how do you get all these different countries with maybe different national interests to sign up? Yeah, so this is interesting. I, I think in Europe, you've got to start with the grand policy framework, which is often how they work. And they've got the Green Deal, of course. And that's where member states say, we, we understand we need to do something in our economies on uh, climate and environment. So we agree to these broad objectives and that has the targets for emissions reductions within that framework. And that gets the easy part because everyone says, sure, you know, we need to meet the, meet the Paris Agreement. We're a good international citizen. What's our fair share? And then, of course, that's when it gets hard after that, because you've got different industrial mixes in different economies. And I mean, if we take some specific examples, we've got a lot of coal and gas in Central Europe. Right. And some of that is costly to replace. And so you can understand that these economies that maybe don't have as high a GDP and have, they have older technology and older kit, they're saying, well, this transition to this Green Deal goal is a bit harder for us in practice. So you do get differences of view and you get uh, some concern, especially from these countries, for example, on attracting finance to transition their energy system. So largely, these financial regulations have been accepted across the EU. And that's good. Uh, it is a, a, a federated policy instrument, as in everyone is supposed to adopt it. Uh, but there's some argument at the margin on the implementation and 
this is why you see a little bit of watering down uh, in some of the regulations mm-hmm. to deal with these political tensions. If you so Nathan, you you kind of have a role that's broader than just the EU, right? So people are often leaning on you to give advice, building their own regulatory framework. So they're kind of pieces of the EU that you think lend themselves really well internationally, and are there pieces of the EU that kind of with hindsight maybe you would have chosen to do differently or in a different order? Yeah. So if we look at the taxonomy, it comes from a very basic idea, and that is if you want to meet targets that are uh, global and one single target, you need to translate that into something meaningful for your economic activity. So that idea is actually pretty logical and unarguable. And I'd say that's why we've now got over 40 taxonomies around the world. Admittedly, some variation mm-hmm. in the format of the implementation, but that's fine. So Europe is establishing that an environmental benchmark is a meaningful part of a financial architecture or financial system because investors need it. Basically, they need a benchmark to compare to. So that was a good innovation and a good step in the European framework, even though it takes a while to, to implement it. So that was a really good start. But the things that Europe didn't do so well was they mixed up or got a bit muddled on the idea of labels for financial products and then disclosures mm-hmm. in the, SF, the SFDR or the disclosure framework. And so the market was a bit unsure about how to react to that. And so that's why there's been a lot of criticism as of the, of the SFDR and the Article 8, Article 9 categorizations. And the Commission is planning to consult on how it should revise that. So even Europe knows it's got, still got work to do. So there, there's been positives and negatives. One of the other great things I think in Europe is that there is a recognition that financial advisors and in the packaging of financial products, there has to be a clear validation of an environmental claim. So this to me is one of the pillars of a transparent, trusting uh, financial framework on sustainability. Back to your comments, Robert, the opening. Uh, so they've done that really well. And so other countries can learn from that as well. But it's interesting to see the UK and the US choosing the labelling approach first, where I think the EU, when you speak to them, would argue that there's a disclosure regulation. The market has chosen that as a labelling regime. It is not itself a labelling regime. Um, what are your observations on on that approach? Yeah, so the US example is quite interesting. And I think that the SEC and, and the... the uh, participants in the debate here found that there's so many different interpretations of simple words Mm -hmm. and it's actually pretty hard to convey a lot of useful information just through fund names for example nonetheless you can understand why this kind of greenwashing don't overstep idea was the starting point and it's within the SEC's uh, mandate Uh, but I think they've learned that unless you've got some detail behind that that can act as a benchmark, you actually don't get too far just with fund names. It's a starting point, but it's not far enough. Um, I think in the UK, when the UK is a really interesting market, very sophisticated financial regulation market, largely progressive uh, financial community in terms of embracing economic transition on sustainability. Uh, So they're prepared to try out lots of things. And they've also got the advantage of being a, a fast follower on Europe. So you can avoid some of the worst uh, difficulties or or uh, crunch points uh, that they were found in Europe. 
uh, but at the same time, they've been able to take all the best parts of the framework. And so the work that I think the UK is doing on labeling is the most sophisticated we've seen globally and has the benefit of learning from Europe. Yeah, I, th- I think that's definitely true. I, if, if I reflect a little on the EU myself, I think this concept of a, a single number to represent the sustainable investment proportion of a, a given product is, is probably the downfall at the moment. People would like that single number to be calculated in a consistent way, as you rightly point out. And so if I'm a retail investor and I'm seeing a product and it's 80% sustainable and another product and it's 12% sustainable, I presume that the 80% is is a better product, when in actual fact, the calculation behind those numbers is very different. And I think that typically when I speak to our client base is probably the thing they struggle with most from SFDR. Uh, Definitely. I mean, I think there's kind of a tendency to just look for a simple number, whether it's a label or a score and just say, you know, get back to my original example, company A is bigger than company B, when actually it's a discussion. I mean, the markets are not I mean, I used to be a former sell-side analyst. You can't just say the stock is always going to do better no matter what. I mean, there's certain conditions in which, you know, some companies are just better positioned than others and understanding the risks and opportunities and how those might translate over time. And I think that's why we need, I hope you would agree that that's really why we need the standardization, that people can do that analysis, not to give them the answer, but to help them answer the question. Yeah, it's a really good point. And if you look at the way financial regulation set up, it does not assume that the end client or the end user of the financial product is an expert financial analyst. That's the role of the fiduciary and the analysts who are bringing those products and advice to market. It's the same with the environmental trends and uh, the implications of the science for sectors. We still need experts in the system mm-hmm. and they've got a form of view. And what we're really trying to do is give them a set of comparable tools that they can use to form that view and make that recommendation. And I think the implication for us, especially, uh, well, on both the buy and the sell side is we are having to introduce a layer of expertise into our professional roles so that we can serve our clients on the types of challenges that are going to influence our calls in future. And that's really our job as financial professionals. So moving kind of, Past the EU, we mentioned other, I think you said 40 taxonomies. If, if everyone wants their own way to standardize, doesn't that kind of defeat the purpose? Oh, they're largely following the European framework. I think the main variation we're seeing is uh, Philippines, for example, announced their taxonomy either uh, just today. And they said, we'll start with a principles-based approach using the European framework. And the reason they did that is because they said, we don't have the data, we don't have the company reporting, and we don't have the financial product reporting. So it's a bit pointless having quite clear metrics and and performance benchmarks because we're just not going to be able to use them. So let's adopt the ideas. Mm -hmm. Let's have a principles-based best efforts approach, and then we'll develop it over time. So I think that's really one of the main tensions and variations we're seeing when these 40 countries adopt. It's how close are they to having something they can bed down with data and reporting, and even Europe has struggled, through to, well, how much do we want to adopt the ideas and then build over time? And, and that's a re- reasonable spectrum. But we're not seeing differences of view on the underlying science, for example. And often 
there's a dispute to say, well, you know, I should just be able to decide whether I think climate change is real and whether this is a real trend and whether economies are really going to transition. So, well, it's not really so much up for debate anymore. We're just looking at designing the right kind of tools that can help. And if countries do that at different speeds and different levels of depth, well, that's totally fine. I think, Nathan, you know, sitting and advising some of these groups myself, you're quite right. Like the first question is, should we copy and paste the EU? And then if not, what's the value of, of deviating kind of for, for those that would need to use this as a tool? The thing that concerns me a little though in advising these groups is there's no central principles-based framework that says, look, these things can be equivalent. So when you're designing one and you're making decisions about how much to deviate from one another, there's always this concern and an unwritten rule that it's not foreseen as equivalent. So an EU investor couldn't use your Philippines-based taxonomy disclosure for a company they're choosing to invest in. And that's a problem because then that Philippines-based company has got an obligation under the EU to report the EU taxonomy for the investor to attract that capital. And so to Rob's point, these things could become very complicated where in order to attract the capital from the international markets you want to attract, you have to report in their domestic taxonomy rather than your own. Um, have you thought of any ways in which that could be kind of better tackled at the point of implementing these? Yeah, so we know we've got a, an effort to streamline international taxonomies. Uh, and that's going to be, uh, I'd say, take several years to work through. It's not unusual for one big market to set a regulatory norm. We've seen the Europeans do it quite often. So I think we've still got a baseline there. I think in practice, you'll get a lot of uh, investors and uh, countries saying, well, here's our approach to meet our disclosure obligations. And there'll be a secondary check. Someone will say, oh, and how does this go against Europe? I think we'll see that a lot in practice in the market. And yeah, it means more paperwork for everyone. There's no, no doubt about that, but that's a characteristic of the whole European reform. Like there's a lot of paperwork where we're still learning what we really need. So I, th I think it's a transition phase in this new rule book. I think the thing I found interesting very recently, and it came through, I think, and correct me, this might need fact checking, Rob, um, the, an, an NGO used a taxonomy disclosure of a company relative to its own corporate sustainability reporting claims on something like a green capex or a green revenue value, where this company had chosen for the taxonomy disclosure to go reasonably low in their numbers because of all the kind of checks that you need to do and therefore being quite conservative with those numbers, where in their standalone sustainability report, they went quite generous and said they, they were doing a lot of green capex, for example. Um, and the NGO came to the SEC and said, hmm, is this greenwashing? Because clearly the de facto standard for, be it green revenue, green capex, is the taxonomy. Therefore, very interestingly, a company's self-claimed green revenue or green capex is actually meaningless or could be subject to concern. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I would think that that's why we need kind of integrated reporting where, you know, you don't have a sustainability report that's produced by the marketing department and, um, uh, the taxonomy report that's produced by the accountants. I mean, you know, I've been doing ESG for a while now, and it seems to be that, you know, when I talk to corporate customers and say, you know, why don't you disclose this more? Surely you have this data. They said, we absolutely have the data. We're proud of our record, but the lawyers and the accountants don't want us to give this number because, you know, once something's in your financial documents, same with your profit margins or your um, liabilities, 
you know, it has to go through extra layers of of uh, assurances. So I think that's really one of the things holding investors back. And as you kind of see sustainability and and uh, financial reporting kind of become more and more intertwined, I, you know, I would hope that you would see better data quality and then even non-ESG investors would have more certainty around some of the data points they're seeing. Yeah, I think you're right. And I mean, let's just think about where we are on this journey. It's reasonable for a company to say, we get it. We're trying to do something and we're going to keep improving over time. That's like a reasonable thing to say in a, a corporate report or a message for your stakeholders. I think what we're trying to add now is the framework that helps you validate that over time. And if you look at something like the new principles that have been released by the Treasury for transition plans, it actually tries to distinguish some of the ideas to say, are you already meeting the environmental target? Are you planning to use your CapEx to meet the environmental target in time? Are you simply saying, we get it and we're going to try and transition over the long term? There's actually some quite clear categories. And they're the concepts that companies are struggling with a bit in their uh, corporate disclosures. So if we can turn some of these ideas into part of the comparable framework, it's going to make it easier for everybody. I think that's so true. Like in the market today, you saw this real rush to kind of put the stake in the ground that says, here's my net zero target. And actually, probably the largest area of demand that I hear nowadays is, is it credible? Right. Like, I've got all this data from you, but I don't know if I believe they're actually going to achieve that. And I think also your point about, you know, one of the things that concerns me about a taxonomy is that there, there does seem to be, uh, no offense particularly out of Europe, but this almost purity test where if a company's making efforts, but they're not all the way there, you know, it kind of basically throw them aside like every other polluter. Um, good example, I just saw um, there was a video that Apple put out a few weeks ago, um, you know, where they were talking to Mother Earth and uh, about the great innovations they had. And then it was immediately just trashed for being greenwashing. And it's like, well, they're bringing awareness. They're taking credible steps towards greening their you know, system. Is it going to change the world? Probably not. But it's, you know, to trash them over that versus, you know, you still have plenty of corporations in America that don't even acknowledge climate change or don't really are not really making any real effort. I mean, to me, it just seems a bit too much. You, I think, Rob, you've hit a trigger point with Nathan and I if you start to say the taxonomy isn't a tool for transition, because I think we very firmly believe that it is in actual fact. And like one example I will give is I sit with Singapore where they're introducing this concept of an, an amber taxonomy. And we talk about things like if you are building a new building, do you genuinely want a lower ambition level? Like, do you want an amber new building or do you want a green new building? And the answer is I want a green new building. And then when you look at things like uh, renovation, you see actually in the EU taxonomy, it's talking about a percentage improvement. And you go, oh yeah, I want a percentage improvement. Do I want a, a lower percentage improvement? No, I don't. And actually when we were starting to unpick the EU taxonomy to come out with these amber categories, there were very very few where we moved away from the EU because actually transition is baked in to the EU. And I think for me at least, and Nathan, I'll let you chime in too, or as a panelist, the number one thing is, oh, this EU taxonomy only represents the deepest, deepest green, the best performer. And I don't necessarily think that that is true. And we see that a little through the CapEx numbers that we're seeing reported in Europe at the moment, particularly in the utilities and energy sectors. Yeah, I think that's right. And 
if we think about what the market needs to be good at, uh, it needs to understand which technologies activities are aligned with goals. We have to understand that because they're the ones that are going to have lower regulatory and regulated pricing imposts on them as the economy transitions. So we need to understand what a good cement factory is, what a good steel plant is, what a good building is, what good ag agricultural practices are. We have to understand that in terms of environmental goals on nature and climate. And then we need to be sophisticated enough to understand when a company hasn't achieved it today, but they've got a credible plan to do it. And when they express the intent, they're going to back that up with their balance sheet, their management capability, their partnerships, their supply chains. And we need to be able to recognize that there's value in both. So it's true, you know, if there's NGO pressure or community pressure to say, you're not green today, that's not good enough. Well, we in the market know that's not realistic. You can't throw those companies out. Uh, so it's up to us to start to just take the dialogue a bit further. And if I'm not taxonomy aligned today, I should say, if I'm going to be. And if I am going to be, and I can back that up, then that really is valuable. And so we shouldn't assume that the taxonomy does anything more than really just provide a comparable benchmark. Yeah. And I think the thing I like almost most at the moment about taxonomy is this concept of I'm eligible, which basically says I could be doing things in a more environmentally sustainable way. And then your alignment is your smaller percentage, but it's that friction between the ratio of eligibility to alignment. That's the wiggle room that an investor through stewardship or through divestment activity has the opportunity to exercise their voice. Um, so I think I think there are mechanisms in it as it starts to become better understood that are really useful to support the transition. Yeah, I mean, I, I always tell investors don't let you know, the old saying, don't let perfect be the enemy of the good, where, you know, a lot of times I'll get asked, you know, how is this oil company in an Article 8 fund? And, you know, full disclosure, I used to be an oil analyst. So, you know, are oil companies, you know, can they be part of the transition? Absolutely. Are they maybe dragging their feet a little bit? Perhaps. But, you know, these, these are smart people that understand hydrocarbons. They understand the energy systems. So I think, you know, trying to get them on board and, and recognizing the credible movement they're making towards the transition, I think, is, is key for investors. Yeah, that's right. Investors want to earn the dividend from companies in transition, and they want the companies to slowly shift their balance sheet to sustainable income streams. So absolutely, the our, our community wants that approach. And taxonomy allows a company to say, well, I'm 5% aligned today, but I'm going to invest this much of our capital in becoming 15% over the next five years, will you stick with me? And that's a really attractive proposition. Absolutely. So that's the, that's the beauty of these kinds of, and we just really, it's up to us as users of these tools to get a bit more sophisticated in how we mm -hmm. talk about them. I think it's really, that's our role. And I think actually, Rob, and maybe Nathan, it was one thing you didn't touch on is one of the really clever pieces of the EU legislation is the change in suitability. So the dialogue used to be, let's imagine I'm the asset manager and, and Nathan's my asset owner. He would expressly need to come to me and say, Nadia, I have these sustainable goals. And then I would factor them into the product that I'm building. But what the EU did was they changed that. And I needed to open the conversation with Nathan going, do you have any sustainability preferences? And actually what happens is when you're asked, you possibly say, oh, yeah, I I do. Now, one problem that's resulted from that is the um, retail consumer might be going, yeah, this green tax on I want like 75% green in my fund, which right now is not realistic or achievable. So there's a little bit of a rub in consumer expectation relative to what 
a manager is capable of delivering. But actually that change in narrative, I think is a really healthy thing to start to grow more sustainable products. I think there was a, a recent Bloomberg piece on how Article 6, so the non-ESG brand of a fund, isn't really sellable in Europe anymore. That actually the majority of AUM is starting to tilt to the Article 8 and 9, so the, the greener products, and certainly the flows you're seeing trend in that way too. Are, are they able to sell anti-ESG funds in Europe? <laughs> I, I don't think we've caught that cold yet. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, you know, I'll give this to uh, to your point about kind of investor preferences. I think, you know, one of the pushbacks you hear from the anti-ESG politicians is that, you know, do shareholders know what they're signed up for? And, you know, that's one thing I will agree with them on, that there should be full disclosure. There should be, you know, investors should say, do you want this? Are you, you know, I, I think they want to pitch it as like ESG is always going to lose you money. So are you okay losing money? Which obviously we know is is a false dynamic. But I think absolutely that you know no investor should be caught off guard about what is in their portfolio. Uh, I just want to switch gears a little bit. One of my pet peeves is is you know investors in the media. You know they they talk about ESG. They just think climate, climate, almost exclusively. And there's a lot of focus in the EU regulations on climate. So what can be done for the S side? What are you guys doing for for social focused investors? So the European framework has a couple of goes at this in different areas. It provides some social indicators that you can uh, disclose through your SFDR obligations. And it has some minimum safeguards in the taxonomy, which basically relate to the OECD guidelines on uh, multilateral uh, institutions. And that's based on the human rights framework. So the human rights framework is actually very wide. It, it involves the way you deal with your workforces, um, the way you deal with your local communities around your business. And these are basic principles that we're trying to now incorporate into the sustainable finance framework. So, I mean, it comes as a surprise sometimes to people, but we've had that international social framework for 60 years, longer actually. It's the climate framework kind of developed over the last two to three decades. And now we're trying to develop the nature framework in the last three to four or five years. So there's actually a lot we can draw on for the social metrics and social criteria. A lot of them have been measured by governments, by NGO community, and some investors for, for decades, frankly. And it's just a, a case of bringing them in in a useful way into these disclosure obligations. So I, I know the investors we talk to, they're really interested in supply chains and human rights. They're really interested in workplaces. They're interested in diversity and how that leads to companies' productivity and decision-making. And you know what? We've got a lot of data on these things now. I, I guess one of the questions that follow up on this, the whole supply chain, human rights, obviously it's something that, that investors always care about, but you know, as supply chains get more global and you're dealing with a lot of local vendors you know, throughout the globe, you know, it seems to me there's some We've heard about the CS, what is it, the CSDDD or mm. Triple D. Um, you know, is it almost, obviously there's motivation to disclose, but is is it kind of going too far? Is there, is it too costly maybe for these small community farmers, for example, to have to report into the, you know, EU regulatory framework? Yeah, I think it's really challenging. It, there's no question it is. I think the way we've got to think as investors in OECD markets, in corporations that basically have OECD customers, is what are the expectations of the users and the financial supply chain around that business model? And frankly, it's not the local government in the emerging economy. Right. You know, so we've got to, we've got to 
be a bit clear about who we're serving with our products and our investments. And that's a set of expectations we've got to see if we can follow through in those investment supply chains. So that's the reason for doing it. Does that make the data available? No, it doesn't necessarily. And so we're going to have to try and build up that framework over time. But I think the interesting idea or the and the harder idea about the CSDD is the idea that if you find that there's a problem in the supply chain, you've got to take some action on it. So the data is really only the first step. Mm -hmm. This kind of remedying the problems in the supply chain and for an investor to engage on that, you know, that's a, an extra level of stewardship and dialogue between the investor and the company that is just another example of how we're going to have to increase our investment as a investment community or um, the holders of long-term assets, how we're going to increase our capacity on stewardship and dialogue uh, with the companies we hold to help them work through these things. And this can't, this can't be gotcha moments. It's not going to work right. if you find a problem because there's a bit of a disincentive there, right? The investors have to be patient. They have to have to try and support the companies to, to step their own path out. And we're going to have to take time. So if companies therefore are saying, yeah, I get it, I'm going to start looking, I'm probably going to find some problems, but let's try and get the data and work through it. Frankly, that's the kind of response we want. Yeah, I, the main problems I think we had when debating things like minimum social safeguards under the taxonomy being a divestment signal was exactly that problem where you actually don't want divestment from social issues. And if you do look deeply into the supply chain of large listed corporates, you probably do have one or two problems and you don't want this process of cover up because otherwise that would be a signal to divest. So actually encouraging companies to do a social supply chain audit and uncover and be clear where they have issues and have time bound remediation plans makes a lot of sense because social issues are context specific, not company specific. And so you're going to get better longer term outcomes if you take that approach. Just wrapping up then, what are the other big challenges You know, we haven't really talked about or maybe that the world isn't focused enough on that investors need to start really paying attention to? Yeah. So on climate, I'll be very brief because we talk about it all the time, but we have to face into the idea that we might overshoot 1.5. And if we do, we're going to have increased unpredictability in climate systems, and we're going to have much more cost for drawdown and storage of, of greenhouse gases. So we need to start working that into our scenario planning. Then one dimension of that is the interplay of nature and climate. So our land use prognosis, when we're going over 1.5 a little and having to come back, is that our the way we deal with forestry, the way we deal with food production, and all of those supply chains actually transforms and so there's big investment questions around that. And then to make it even more complex, you've got to start to overlay all of the uh, sort of community dependency on some of these natural resources. And to me, climate transition has always been a people problem, people question. You know, how do you deal with the communities that are affected by the industries that are polluting and their livelihoods? And so we start to accelerate some of those social context questions that we just talked about. So I won't you know, try and sensationalize to say, oh, there's a really big issue we've all missed here. It's more of a question of how do these issues link up? And then how do you transform an economy when you've got to pull lots of levers at the same time? And what's the role of the institutional investor in that? So that's my, what I'll leave you is the thing we've got to watch out for most. Not oh, look, I can't top that. That was a brilliant answer for me. Okay, final wrap up question. We're in a room with microphones, screens, 
top karaoke song you're not allowed to say Linkin Park uh, but that's but that's our song um I yeah no for sure I, I I'm I'm a big fan of Linkin Park with you Rob, particularly yeah absolutely and nathan i'm a fan of the king for me it's blue suede shoes oh nice one beautiful well great thanks very much for stopping by both of you um for our listeners if if you want to continue to read more about uh esg regulation the eu taxonomy check out biesg to see uh some of the work that nadia and her team have built uh to help investors wade through this stuff definitely go to esg go on the bloomberg terminal thank you very much for joining us Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, let's face it, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. There's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.